Hey everybody, welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and welcome to our show. We took a bit of a break in June, unintended, but I needed a little bit more rest than I thought I did after what was an, uh, a very, very busy May, a very intense and uh, exhausting May as we were doing a lot of speaking. I was doing a lot of speaking to companies and to schools and just a lot of work centered around Asian Pacific American Heritage Month and the the demand for Asian American voices uh, within those spaces. So I hope you didn't miss us too much. We are back with an amazing uh, July cast of speakers. Uh, today, we kick off with my friend Simran, also known as at Sick Professor or at Sick Prof. On Instagram, he is an author. He is a professor. He is an advocate. Most importantly, he is an amazing uh, community voice, not just for his Sikh faith uh, in his community, but for all Asian Americans. And so really excited uh, to share my conversations with him as we dive into what it means to be a father, what it means to be an Asian American in today's uh, society. And so really excited uh, to share my conversations with him. In the coming weeks, we have my uh, friend, really good friend, Eric Toda, uh, Michelle Lee, uh, Dr. Gino In, and so many more. And so Thank you for joining us. If you found us this year, uh, we are so grateful that you have joined us. If you've been with us at the beginning, uh, been with us since the beginning, uh, thank you so, so much. And so without further ado, I introduce you now to my friend Simran and our conversation here together on Dear Asian Americans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans and wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to us, we hope that you are continuing to keep in health and in safety as we continue to deal with a challenging time. It's a very conflicting time, as I think those of us in the States are dealing both with the anticipation of things opening back up, the hope and the, the promise that we've been told here stateside that things are going back to as normal as we can, but also dealing with a lot of trauma and a lot of bad news that we not only see here in the States on the news as it pertains to our particular communities, but also globally, as we continue to read about the rise of COVID in India and now in other Asian countries, and obviously what is going on in Palestine and other parts of Asia that trouble us so much. And so we're recording this in May, and as we celebrate APAM still and continue to advocate for all of our stories and the amplification of all our stories, we hope that you're doing well. I am really, really excited and honored more than anything to share this conversation with our guest today, Dr. Simranjit Singh. It is a PhD who was recognized among Time Magazine's 16 people fighting for a more equal America. That's a pretty big deal. He's got all of his degrees, including his PhD from Columbia. He's a professor. He is a consultant. And he just does so much to advocate for his community and for all Asian Americans. For parents in the audience, while you listen, please jump on over and buy his children's book that we have at our home. Baja Singh Keeps Going, which is the true story of the oldest person to ever run a marathon. And he's also got a couple other adult books called More of This, Please, Sick Wisdom for the Soul. And so really, really excited to share this conversation with my friend Simran. Hi, Simran. Hi, Jerry. How are you doing? It's great to be with you. Thanks for this. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm great. I appreciate you asking that. You know, I'm, I'm from Texas originally and live in New York City. So, uh, so the summer coming around. Um, it feels good. It feels good for my soul uh, to have a little sun, you know, with the, with the country opening back up a little bit and people being vaccinated there. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of silver linings to hold on to after a tough year. So I'm feeling pretty, 
pretty hopeful right now. That's probably the best word for it. It is. I, I think we, we share all in that sentiment. And in a time when there's just so much going on, and I, I reached out to you shortly after the massacre and, and the tragedy in Indianapolis, and I just want to thank you personally and also publicly here for being so willing and, and open and eager to come and share not only your story, but the story of your community, which is often unheard. And we can do a better job sharing the stories of not just our South Asian brothers and sisters, but particularly of the Sikh faith. And so thank you so much for making time for this today. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, after uh, the massacre in Indianapolis and, you know, w- when you reached out and, and, and things were a little bit too hectic, as, as you would as you would understand yeah. from, from your own work, just a little bit too hectic to be able to connect then. So I appreciate your patience. And also, I mean, I, w- I would say, you know, being in, in conversation this year around anti-Asian racism and, and violence and thinking a lot about what it what it would look like to have a more cohesive unity uh, uh, within and among our communities. You know, that 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 massacre really, really shone a light on, on the importance of this, just like just like the Georgia spa shootings and, and so many other instances of violence. So, yeah, it, there is something really urgent uh, about these conversations, in my opinion, as, as we're trying to live through them and figuring out how to keep our family safe in the midst of this violence. I, mean, look, I, I don't think it's just your opinion. I, I really do think that when we talk about Asian America and whether it is mainstream media or even Asian American media outlets, there is a significant difference that is tangible in the way that we cover East Asian stories, Southeast Asian stories, and South Asian stories. And so if, if we're going to have the audacity to call any of our stuff Asian across the board, we have to be inclusive. And if we don't know, I don't know somebody from that community isn't really an excuse anymore, you know? And, and so I am so glad you're here. I was introduced to the Sikh faith by my really good friend, Jay Sani in high school. And, and I learned what, you know, it meant for him to wear a turban and just some of the customs that we shared. And, and so Jay, I don't know if you're listening, but hope you're doing well. <laughs> he's, uh, he's also out there in, in, in New York City. And so we're, we're going to talk about all, all the things that I think, including your book and the advocacy work that do you do at the Sikh Coalition. But let's roll back a little bit. You gave us a little bit of a hint of a, a turban-wearing man growing up in South Texas. Tell us how the Singh family became Indian American and a little bit of the context of how your earlier identity was formed. Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's not something I get to speak about very often, but I but I love having the chance to sort of trace my roots because I, I think in in many ways the uh, the experience of living between worlds is is very much part of our family's history. My grandparents on both sides uh, lived on what is now the Pakistan side of Punjab, and in 1947, when the British Empire uh, left South Asia and carved out Pakistan and India as new countries. Uh, my, my grandparents on both sides were refugees um, who fled to India for safety. If, if you know, you're listening and you're not familiar, um, it, was, it was very much divided along communal lines, along religious lines, where Pakistan was perceived as the country for Muslims and India was the country perceived as the country for Hindus. And, and there was this sense that you know these communities could not get along, even though historically they had, right? Like their sense of identity changed. And you know, my, my grandparents ended up in a place where they really didn't have a home and had to start life fresh and they didn't, they didn't belong. And, and I think that speaks to my family's experience too. My, my parents uh, both grew up on the Indian side of Punjab and migrated to the States. My father came for his, his PhD in the 70s. Uh, he went back and married my mother in 1980, and and they ended up in Texas. My dad took an engineering job, 
uh, in San Antonio, which is where I was born and raised. Um, and so my, my parents come as immigrants and they're, they're kind of a foot in both worlds. And then, and then there's my brothers and me who, who grow up in South Texas and San Antonio, born and raised all four of us. And, and you might think, or, or at least some people might think, well, if you're born and raised in a place, then, then you must have a sense of belonging. But, but there was this, uh, really unique aspect of our appearance, which is we had brown skin and wore turbans. And so, as much as as much as we felt like we belonged, we also knew at the same time that we didn't fully, and, and we knew that because people would often remind us with with questions like "Where are you from?" or "Why do you look that way?" or you know, from from the innocuous and well-meaning to the malicious and nasty. I mean, we we got the range of it, but but all of it reminded us we we weren't really perceived as Americans, and so there there was always this sort of strange tension between how we felt. Um, and what we considered and knew as home uh, versus how other people felt about us and, and what they perceived to be uh, foreign or alien or threatening or something like that. So I think I think that's probably the most helpful frame as I think about it. What does it mean for us to be Asian American? It's, it's this strange, um, you know, some might call it a double belonging. I, I might say uh, it's it's no belonging. Right. Like there's there's an absence of that feeling. Um, no matter no matter how much you want it to be there, and so uh, yeah, that's that's uh, my experience as as a an Asian American in this country. You know, when I talk to my Indian American friends or South Asian friends in general, I, I think the identity piece is really really fascinating to talk about because starting with our names, I generalize here, but many South Asian parents give their children traditional names without having a quote unquote Western name in addition. Many East Asian friends, including myself, our parents, in an effort to help us, quote unquote, have easier lives or to assimilate, give us a name like Jerry. Even right. my wife and I found myself giving my two children, our two children, primarily American names, even though their Korean names are their legal middle names. I, I also find my friends of the Sikh faith fascinating because the unapologeticness of your religion it's, it's a visible symbol of your identity. Were, were there parts where you questioned, were resentful, were questioning why you couldn't be like some of the other quote-unquote American kids growing up? And, and how did your parents teach the identity, both cultural and religious, to you to be so proud continuing to this day? Oh, I mean, the, the answer to your first question is definitely. Definitely there were moments uh, throughout our childhood and, and even now, if I'm being honest, where those questions cross your mind and, and you're like, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to, to have a different sort of experience in, in this country where you would feel safer? And, and you know, those questions look different uh, as you mature. The things that you think about uh, in terms of your desires change as you mature, but, but the underlying question is still the same, right? Like, don't you wish that you could have what you see other people having and, and what you aspire for? And absolutely, that's. I mean, I think that's part of what makes us human. And, and the, I think the the deeper question you're asking here, Jerry, is is super interesting. Which is, how do you get beyond that, or at least how do you navigate that feeling? And I think that's hard, right? Like that's it's it's hard for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that makes it most difficult is that those desires look different for everyone. How we navigate those look different for everyone. So there's no simple formula. Uh, as as you're parenting, as as you're raising children, as you're teaching in the classroom. 
there's no there's no easy way to to navigate this messiness and just say all you have to do is xyz and and all these problems are resolved it's it's not that easy and now that i'm a parent and and have two daughters who are very different from one another um just by their own nature uh they're they're extremely different from one another and it's clear to me that what works for my older daughter um in terms of you know instilling values and education uh, is very different than what works for my younger daughter and and the values are the same uh, and the lessons are the same but the way that they receive them and what's effective as communication um, and education it, it it varies and so it's it's a long way of saying man it's it's such a hard challenge in this country um but i think i think for me and and for my family growing up you know there there isn't there was never really and and this might be sort of a pro of a, a benefit of of being so distinct uh, that there's no hiding from it, right? Like when you wear a turban, you may feel like, as my brothers and I did, uh, you may feel like you belong. You may feel like uh, you have friends and, you know, you're loved in your communities and in your classrooms and your sports teams. Like my brothers and I felt all of that. And at the same time, there was no, there was no false sense of uh, our being fully included in anything, right? We always had this, sensitivity to our difference and and so i think that's part of it like i i think one of the challenges that we have in this country as we train our kids and raise them is that we give this uh false sense of reality we don't talk to them about racism or sexism or homophobia until they bring it up to us or until they have to deal with it and at that point they've already been indoctrinated into this false sense of reality as if these things aren't real, as if this isn't going to be part of their life experience, and then they end up confused. And so it's, it's more painful, definitely, to have to have those conversations at a young age. But uh, when you're in a position like we were as kids and like our parents were, uh, to not have the privilege of avoiding those conversations, then you're at a point as, as a family, as a unit, as a community, where you can actually create a sense of honest openness uh, that leads to much more productive and firmly rooted understandings of the world, but also support systems. So I think that's probably, to me, uh, the thing that as I look back at how our parents raised us and, and you know how we endured the challenges that came our way, I think there's something about grappling with the reality of our world rather than uh, shielding ourselves from it and shielding our children from it, that really helps produce uh, a more sincere relationship and grappling with our complex identities. Man, I love this conversation already because you you lead me into where I want to go next with the conversation. (laughs) Because I think regardless of how you came here, right, many of us uh, in your family situation, as it was in mine, was of volunteer immigration. So many of our friends, you know, uh, have different circumstances that led us here. But by and large, it was this quest for assimilation, whether we knew those words or not, whether our parents knew those words or not, but also being Mm -hmm. accepted into survival. And so you're right, these things that are generationally and culturally so different from the worlds that our parents grew up in, I don't blame them at all. I know a lot of our peers, especially younger brothers and sisters, get so upset at, at their parents for not understanding and not knowing. And Maybe because you and I are both fathers now and we've sort of had the other side of parenthood, like 
yo, it's just hard trying to survive. <laughs> and can you imagine yeah. us picking up our stuff now and going to a third country and then having to start fresh? Like, I don't think I can do it. Right. And, and so we literally stand on the shoulders of people who did things that we, we dare not even imagine. And, and you know, to, to the previous question, I, I think what also is really fascinating to me as, as I sort of unlearn and learn all these things about my own identity and try to help our community uh, forge ahead with this new Asian American identity is for some and, and mainly uh, East Asian folks, there is this conversation always around proximity to whiteness, white adjacency, where some people believe rightfully or wrongfully that they can earn their way, right? Study their way, work at certain places or X, Y, Z, what have you, and sort of blend in with mm -hmm. the main group. Your community cannot, as you said, because the differences are so visible, not just in skin tone, but in just the way that you present yourself, right? And, and so I find it fascinating that the challenges that you must have gone through in sort of not having any choice, but to really be proud of who you are, right? And I, I think that's just something that I will never understand. Um, and, and I wasn't a totally this way, but, you know, there were times where without me knowing it, like I wanted to be a white guy, right? Like mm -hmm. how do mm -hmm. I become a successful white businessman without realizing that I, can, I can't be some of those things, right? Like mm -hmm. um, if the average American CEO in the Fortune 500 is a 6'3 white man, I can't be 6'3 and I can't be white. And, <laughs> and, and yet we, we, we continue to tell ourselves like, that's the goal, right? Like all the sacrifices that your parents made, what do you make of that? And so I find it fascinating and I can't imagine how challenging it is to raise parents or to even be in those situations, particularly as we, at least from the outside, have our own perceptions and stereotypes of what life in, in Texas might be like. Tell us about your academic endeavors. You went straight into academia and, and I guess just continue to study, ultimately earning yourself a PhD in religion. Was that something that you wanted to do? And, and I say that half jokingly because immigrant parents don't expect their kids to study the thing that they are, right? <laughs> That's true, yeah. I, I often joke, like my parents don't quite understand that I tell Asian American stories for a living because that doesn't compute for them, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So That's really interesting. No, I haven't thought about that before, but it's true. And you know, the other, the other side of that coin really is, um, I was a horrible student growing up. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> horrible, but I didn't, I was never interested. Um, I, I just like, you know, I was one of those kids who would go to school and do fine and, and really just check the boxes so that I could go play sports, right? Like that was the rule in Texas. If you didn't pass, you didn't play. Um, and so that's, that's what really drove me in school growing up. There was no vision ever of my going on to graduate school. And the only reason I even wanted to go to college was to play soccer. So definitely, definitely not something that was in the cards. <laughs> but you know, what changed for me in my childhood was I, I was a senior in high school when the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened. Mm. And you know, that was it was it was life changing in a lot of ways for me. Um, but the biggest was watching my community and others uh, just be ravaged, <laughs> just be attacked all over the country. And, and I mean, Maybe the best image is it was like there was a wave of hate and racism that swept around the country, and it just it just overwhelmed people. It overwhelmed entire communities, and I and I saw that, and I saw how difficult it was for Sikhs, for Muslims, for Arabs, for South Asians, for any of us to 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 tell our own stories in those moments. 
Um, and, and it was, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the language for it then, but I realized now that it was a matter of power. Our communities did not have the kind of power we needed uh, to have equal footing in this country. Mm. And so, you know, I, I started becoming interested in, in working with racial justice organizations and, and even the path toward religion and studying religion came out of my own experience of, you know, the intersection of race and religion, right? My, my experience has been, um, my, my community's racialization has very much been rooted, uh, in, in the religious markers of our identity and, and also, uh, very much rooted in Islamophobia, which is another <laughs> intersection of race and religion right. that I'm very much interested in uh, studying because of my personal experiences, but also because of my desire for justice for our community. So it was this really interesting moment in my life where growing up in Texas, I had no Muslim friends, no South Asian friends, really, no sick friends. I mean, it was very much my friend circle was my soccer teammates and my classmates and my neighbors who were black and white and Hispanic. I mean, that's, that's what San Antonio looks like. Mm. But this, you know, this moment in my life really formed a new consciousness for me, um, where I became aware of my own racialization, how people perceived me. And I, I, I felt this really strong connection with these communities where I didn't even know anybody and, and didn't, didn't have any relationship with before. So it, it, it's, a I mean, if you, if I step back and I, as I'm describing it to you, I'm kind of laughing because it's such a bizarre phenomenon and it speaks to how bizarre racism is where you end up being bound to people and feeling closer to them than you are to your own friends sometimes uh, just because uh, you share some aspect of your identity. But that's that's the model we've created for ourselves in this country. And so, uh, of course, that's what our experiences would be, right? So, yeah, there, there really wasn't ever a clear goal for me to get into academia. Mm. But as I got more involved in the activist spaces uh, and trying to figure out what producing justice would look like, the more convinced I became that I, I needed to have some some degree of training and some level of credentials that would help me tell the stories of our communities that that I so badly wanted to tell. And I'm going to brag on you for a second, because for a guy who just wanted to pass to play sports, <laughs> you have a master's from Harvard, two from Columbia, and then a PhD from Columbia. So four Ivy League degrees, not so bad for a guy who just studied to play soccer, which I guess maybe, I don't know, uh, what, what was the conversation like with your parents? Did you discuss any of this stuff with them or was studying religion okay because it was at Columbia from a immigrant dream checklist perspective? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, and uh, even if they are listening, I, I think they would be okay with me saying that, that, um, <laughs> that you know, studying religion, for the, for the same reason that you, you sort of intimated, I think, like studying religion never really computed because it wasn't that... I guess part of it is 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 this aspect of representation. Maybe that's like what what really, if I boil it down to what was driving me then and and helping me imagine what was possible for me in the world. Like as a, as a high school student, I would look around and be like, well, the only things that I know South Asians do are they're they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're engineers. Like I'm not interested in any of that stuff, and so I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And part of the challenge was, and, and this continues to be a challenge for me today, is I, you know, when you look at the world and there's there's not an ability to imagine yourself in spaces because you just don't see yourself there. 
you, you become really constricted. And for me, what that looked like was I, I felt like giving up. Like I, I really just didn't care. And I decided, you know, well, I'm going to create my own path and I, I know what professional sports looks like and that's what I want to do. But I think part of the reason that I fell into that trap was because I really had nowhere to look in terms of models and where I could potentially land. And so, you know, I start having these conversations with my parents and, and, and it becomes very clear quickly um, that, of course, as immigrant parents, uh, what they want for their kids and the reason they came to this country uh, was to create a sense of security. And now here I am opening up about a potential degree in a field they didn't even know existed. I didn't really know it existed myself. And, and they didn't know what a career would look like, right? Like, it's not, it's not exactly a, a promising vision to say that, you know, I get this degree, I spend 10 years of my life preparing for it. And then when I'm 30, I think I was 34 when I was finished. Then when I'm 34, I think the only job prospect that I know of is to be a professor in a, in a, in a university and, and there's no real flexibility there. Right. So it was, it was really troubling to them. Um, and then when the acceptance letter from Harvard came in, I think there was, there was this sort of relief that said, okay, at least we know that there will be some sort of safety net for you. Um, but it, yeah, it was for them, it was very much around, uh, this, this question of what security looks like. How can you live a life where you don't feel like you're chasing the kinds of basic needs that they were chasing when they moved to this country initially. So that, yeah, that's, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I haven't really parsed through it entirely with them uh, in the past, what, 15 years or so since I've, <laughs> since I started the journey, I wonder, I wonder if they're listening, I, I might get a phone call in a few minutes and, <laughs> and see, let's see what they have to say about it all. <laughs> I understand a little bit of, of sort of what you're going through because uh, I mean, people who listen to the show know I, I went business school consulting and then podcaster, like, you know, it, it doesn't make linear <laughs> sense. And, you know, I, I often joke, like my parents really don't understand what I do for a living, but you know, I, I don't ask them for financial assistance and their grandkids seem really happy. So maybe they just think it's okay, you know? Um, <laughs> but, but it is in this really sort of creating the things and creating dialogue and, and content that I wish existed when we were all growing up, right? Exactly. And to hope that when, when your daughters and my two kids listen to, you know, Uncle Simran and Uncle Jerry talk about us being us, that somehow it inspires them to feel more pride and, and just have a, a healthy identity and, and not to have some of the self-doubting thoughts of just assimilation or self-hate almost, which also is, is pretty relevant in, in our communities. And so I, I want to talk to you about the work that you do at the Sick Coalition. But before we do that, I know that not many people understand what the faith is about with 25 million people who believe it is the fifth largest religion in the world, but it, it is often unknown, misunderstood. And there's half a million people in, in the States that, that practice the faith. It, I know it's maybe not be fair to ask you to share in, in a very brief time everything about the religion, but tell us about the basic tenets of the faith and what makes it so amazing. Oh, that's such a good way to ask the question because, you know, um, as a, as a professor of religion, I could talk for <laughs> however long you want me to about, <laughs> about this topic. Welcome uh, to the but, longest but podcast it? episode ever, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but what is it that makes the faith amazing to me? You know, I, it's, it's one of those things where I really took it for granted growing up. Um, I, I was born into a sick family, and I, I thought that I was sick. I mean, I, I was sick because my parents were sick. 
And it just, you know, it, it felt natural to me in that it was it's what I knew growing up. And it was really in college when I started studying other religious traditions and trying to see what made sense to me as, as a worldview uh, that I really came to develop an appreciation for, for Sikhism or Sikhi, as we call it in the original Punjabi. And, and the thing that I really loved about it more than anything else, there's there's this this uh, pragmatism to it um, that that very much avoids, or maybe not avoids, but it doesn't center the larger metaphysical questions that I that I felt like, and still feel like a lot of religious communities get caught up in and get distracted by, and lose focus on what really matters in this life. And so, what Sikhism teaches us is that in this life, we don't know what happens to us after we die. There's not really much value in in focusing on that. We do know what happens to us while we live. And, and so let's live our best lives possible. And there are three core tenets um, that speak to what a good life looks like, how you can achieve it, but also how you practice how, how you practice it on a daily basis. And so those, those core tenets are uh, the idea of oneness, that everything in this world is interconnected. And therefore, there is this element of justice, right? If you if you truly feel like everything is equally divine, as our tradition teaches us, uh, then there's no place for discrimination on any basis. Um, and and that's that's absolutely clear in our tradition. Um, and it's something that I that I really love about the faith. Like there's there's never uh, within the tradition, at least, there's never been this attempt. Uh, to justify discrimination, it's 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 clear across the board that it's unacceptable. And then also, I think that within that teaching, uh, if you truly feel like everything is connected, then your goal in life becomes how do you break through what we call what what, what the founder Guru Nanak calls the wall of falsehood. How do you break down the wall of falsehood that prevents you from seeing the interconnectedness? And that that wall of falsehood is presented as the ego. How do you overcome your ego uh, and stop seeing yourself as exceedingly special, as exceptional, um, and start seeing yourself as part of a larger whole? And and I think, you know, when I was in college, it felt like the need of the moment. Um, And and now, as I'm looking at the world falling apart um, and how much of our battles, how much of our violence, how much of our fighting comes out of ego, comes out of these identity politics that are essentially trying to prove who is better, right? There's so much supremacist violence all around us. And I love having a, a vision for the world that centers me in such a way that there's there's no possibility of, of falling into that trap. And so that that to me is, is sort of the core teachings of Sikhism. And the last thing I'll say is, if you truly feel that, and if you can truly feel connected uh, with all the people around you and the world around you, then the natural expression of that we're taught in Sikhism uh, is is service, right? You you act because you care, just like a parent uh, serves their kids or helps their kids, even if they're even if they don't want to, <laughs> right? Like I I change my daughter's diapers. I, I don't enjoy changing diapers, and I'd really <laughs> rather not. But it's <laughs> but it's not kind of a choice, right? Like it's it's coming out of love. And so that that's that's the kind of vision for service and activism that that the Sikh teachings bring forward. And I think it's such a powerful way of thinking about what activism could look like if it was rooted in love and a feeling of of connectedness 
what would it look like like for us to seek justice by practicing justice on a daily basis? Mm. I, I think about that a lot, especially as as so many of us right now are looking at the inequities of our world and feeling frustrated and, and oftentimes acting out of that frustration and 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 I see I see it happening where you know we act out of anger and our anger is righteous and justified. But at the end of the day, if we're not able to overcome that and, and find uh, love as a driving force for us, um, we, we can end up creating the very problems we're trying to resolve. And so how do we how do we break that cycle? I think I think that's a key question for us in our generation right now. You know, the first time I was introduced to the faith back in high school, to, to be frank, I'm not quite sure where, where I stand on my belief system anymore. But um, I, I was raised in a Christian household and, and was relatively active within the the student organization in my high school. And and so I, I distinctly remember in, in my conversations with Jay and, and other friends sort of, you know, trying to understand the differences and, and the nuances of the different religions. Yeah. And unfortunately, as as I'm sure you're, you're very aware, a lot of fundamentalist church organizations ask their young members to try to bring their friends to events and to, you know, sort of convert them, right? And right, right, right. So I, I remember having this conversation with Jay and he's like, to us, everybody's equal. And so I don't think you're wrong. And yeah, <laughs> I, I remember not being able to compute that, right, Simran? Because in, in the way that I was raised in so many of our other, not other, but, you know, different religions, I'm right, you're wrong. Therefore, I'm going to try to convince you to join me. And he, he just told me, no, I think we can all believe what we believe in. And it's, it was a hard thing for me to compute then. It makes a little bit more sense now. So I, I think it's that the tenets of the faith, I think, is wonderful because it's really rooted in equality, is it not? Just that everybody is the same. And I think, as, as you shared, considering all the nastiness that is going on in the universe, isn't equality what we're trying to achieve or at least dream of? I think that is so wonderful. Yeah. I do want to ask a couple of questions that I think might also help the audience and even me understand the faith a little bit more. In media, we've seen representations of the faith, sometimes in, in harmful caricature types, as, as we know of a very famous cartoon series that ran for a very long time. And, and in, on the other side of the spectrum, most recently with the um, Toronto Raptor superfan Nav uh, Bhatia, right, right, there's right. a turban sitting in the Basketball Hall of Fame. That is so amazing. Tell us about some of the traditions that I think often mark the faith. So share with us what is the tradition or the reasoning behind the men keeping their hair long and, and some of the other things that mark the Sikh faith in, in a very unique and amazing way. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, the that's the most visible aspect of, of the Sikh identity. So so if people uh, see one thing, right, that's the first thing they'll notice. And it's, it's what's most, I think, what's most intriguing uh, because it looks different. And uh, I'll speak a little bit to to the visible aspect of the Sikh identity. There are there are five articles of faith that Sikhs maintain, um, especially initiated Sikhs. It's mandatory for them, and, and in the Sikh faith, um, very few people get initiated. It's a it's an optional choice. Everyone is encouraged to do so. I would say, uh, from my own, you know, anecdotal experience, maybe maybe one to two percent of the population is initiated. Um, one of the one of the articles of faith. Um, that that six maintain uh, among those five is is long uncut hair, and that's for men and women. Uh, men and women are both uh, welcome to wear turbans, although it's true that men are more often uh, 
seen as wearing turbans than, than women. The five articles of faith, and then I'll talk about the turban momentarily. The five articles of faith, um, you know, there, there are all sorts of different kinds of explanations that people have of what they mean to them personally, which, you know, in, in, in a matter of faith, that's very, very common. And I don't, I don't see it as my role and I'm, I'm not interested in, you know, saying what's right and what's wrong, right? Like in, in religion, everyone has their own personal reasons and, and it doesn't, there, there's no value add to say, well, this is the right or wrong. But what I, what I can say is for all six that I know, including myself, the underlying reason um, that's most meaningful for why they maintain the five articles of faith, including the long uncut hair, uh, is that it was it's seen as a gift from our gurus. Our gurus are uh, the prophets who lived um, from the 15th to the early 18th century, so about 250 years. They lived in, in Punjab, and they uh, shared their wisdom with the world on, on what it would look like to live a good life. And so... The 10th guru, the final living guru, um, before he passed, uh, he gave these five articles of faith as the, the, the public Sikh identity. And so six to this day, uh, what, 300 years later, uh, still maintain these articles of faith out of love for their guru. It's, it's kind of like a wedding ring, right? Like you can't really explain in words why it matters to you. Uh, it's, it, it matters mostly because it represents a relationship that you cherish. And so you cherish uh, those, those articles just like you would a wedding ring. So that's, those are the five Ks, as they're called. Each of them begins with K in the original Punjabi. Um, the turban uh, is not technically one of the five Ks in, in my read of it, um, but it's, it's something that was also given by the gurus and, and I, I love the story behind it because essentially at the time in South Asia, uh, turbans were, were exclusively worn by royalty, by kings at the time. Mm. And so, you know, the gurus rejected all, all social hierarchies, whether it was on the basis of caste or gender or even social status. And they said, you know what? Kings aren't any better than any of us. But, but think about this in terms of how they imagined their activism. I, I, I take a lot of lessons from this. Instead of saying, hey, all you kings, you should stop wearing your turbans, uh, which is probably what we would do today. Uh, instead, they empowered everyday people and said, you know what? You're as good as kings are. We're, we're just going to appropriate that practice. And from now on, going forward, like all of you wear turbans too. And we're going to claim our own sovereignty. Mm. And so it's it's just a totally different way of thinking about uh, what social change looks like. I mean, I, I love, then there are so many examples of this uh, that we can draw from the lives of the gurus. But I, I love this idea of saying, instead of criticizing and taking down, what would it look like for us to re-envision and, and sort of subvert the existing norms uh, to, to empower the people around us. And so that's, that's where this, the, the practice of the turban comes from. So, so to me, it's very much a reminder of our shared divinity, uh, that we're all equally royal and, you know, a reminder of our equality. And it's also a reminder of, of the core values, uh, that I espouse as a Sikh, as I tie my turban every morning, I think about, you know, love and service and justice, because I, I know that, when I walk out on the street in New York City, where I live now, or Texas, where I grew up, or wherever, when people see that, that they're going to be interpreting my, whatever my actions are 
as a reflection of, of my faith. And so that's why as I tie the turban, I'm reflecting on those values every morning. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. You have not only got your PhD in religion, this is what you do now. You're, you're an advocate, you're an author, you speak, uh, you consult, you live your identity, both cultural and religious, as, as a part of your daily work. We, we shared earlier at the top of the show, your book, Baja Singh Keeps Running, over 10,000 copies sold. We have now a copy in our home of a, a man with a turban represented uh, to my children growing up. Tell me about the decision to write that book and why it was so important for you to write that book when you learned about the legacy of Baja. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the story of writing that book goes back to my own childhood, growing up in Texas and really wanting to see characters and books like that look like the people in my family. And there weren't any, there, there were never any. I found it so frustrating and disappointing. And so, you know, I, I remembered that feeling. I, I had told myself as a child that when I grew up, I would uh, write my own books if no one had written them. And I, I kind of forgot that promise to myself until my first daughter was born. And I started going back to bookstores and libraries to start putting together uh, the book collection for her room uh, when she would be born. And uh, man, I just got those those memories of disappointment and, and hurt just flooded back. Like I started looking at the bookshelves and realized like not a, not a damn thing had changed in all that time. And so I think there, there's a really important lesson here around um, activism and representation too, which is like things haven't changed in so many years. You, you can't really expect things to change on their own. You have to take initiative. Um, and so that's that's when I decided uh, it was time to write the book. Now, it's it's a lot harder to write a kid's book than than you think it is, than, than I thought it was. And it took me a lot longer to do it. And part of what really helped me was finding the story of Fodja Singh, which is a story that had been sitting under my nose the whole time. I'd been following him for years. I actually had started running marathons because of him. I, I was inspired wow. by him um, and, and somewhat ashamed because he, he ran a marathon at the age of 100. And I was like, oh, my God. I need, to, I need to stop making excuses now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I, he, he was this man who had such an impact on my life. And as I learned more about him, I realized this wasn't just, it wasn't just an interesting story about a sick who achieved great things, which it is, right? Like running a marathon at, a, at 100 is, is ridiculous. But as I learned more about him, he, he, I, I realized that everything his story brought forward it reflected the core lessons I wanted to instill in my kids, right? Like, so resilience and perseverance, um, but also this intersectional way of thinking, which, which really feels like, at least in, at least in, in kids literature right now, um, it really feels like it's sorely missing. Right. And, and that was my experience growing up too, right? Like I, I felt, and, and this is a, a great trick of, of racism and white supremacy, I, I felt like no one understood my experiences because they weren't sick. And, and if I had asked my friends around me, I'm sure now uh, that they would get it because they were also marginalized for their own different reasons and identities. But this man, Fo Singh, to me, really represents the quintessential intersectional story, right? Because he uh, was disabled as a child. Um, he moved to a different country. So he was an immigrant. He never learned to read or write. So he's illiterate. He is somebody who's older. So he challenges ageism. Like there's so many elements of his story 
that just sort of challenge your perceptions. And they did for me as I learned more about him. And I realized some of the assumptions that I had about what a hero could look like, right? Like how, how uncomfortable did it make me that I was aspiring to be like someone who was illiterate. And I'd always grown up learning that those people are not to be emulated, um, right? Like that's, that's not who we think of as our heroes. And so it was in learning about his story and, and feeling challenged myself and realizing how I was growing through learning him that I, I realized that that was something we could give to our children as well. How do we, how do we help them extend their minds and see the humanity in people who they might not see as human otherwise? You mentioned the importance of your own daughter or your own children seeing people wearing turbans and in yourself represented in books. I'm going to take it a step further that it's more important that other kids see that person in books because I, I think we often think about, because I, I had the same thought, you know, I created this show for my daughter. I wanted Asian Americans to feel seen and heard, but I need yeah. white people to listen to this. I need black people to listen to this, right? And to understand wh where we come from and then to humanize each other at the end of the day, because I strongly believe if we all heard each other's stories from a human to human perspective, that we wouldn't see half the nasty stuff in the world because it comes from judgment. It comes from stereotype and it comes from misunderstandings and, and lack of care to know. And so I'm going to tell you now, uh, your book is now made it onto the one family rotation of books we buy for my kids' birthday parties. <laughs> awesome. if, if, if nothing else, all of my kids' friends are going to have at least one Asian American book on their bookshelf in a year after yeah. all their birthdays yeah, rotate exactly. through. And so when we talk about sort of, and I understand publishing is a business, right? And so maybe there's not a lot, as many more books featuring sick folks in, in, in turbans because they say, hey, the market's not big enough. They say, no, the whole world is the market. Is it not? Like white, brown, black kids should want to have the diversity of stories, or at least their parents should. And so thank you for writing that book. I know that it will has inspired other people to do more of that. And I think as we sit here in 2021, amidst all the nastiness that has happened in, in our community, I hope that the takeaway is for people to feel emboldened and inspired to share their stories more. And, and I hope that that's the lasting legacy for, for you. As we wrap here, your work with the Sikh Coalition and advocating for those of your faith and those from your community it is what continues to drive you. What would you like for us to know in the ways that we can help? I think in the aftermath of the Indianapolis massacre, there was one, not enough coverage, but also the, the context and the nuance was missing. I, for one, decided with a few friends that we would let the coalition direct all commentary and we amplified those because we weren't the right people to put in our own commentary into what was going on and, and how we wanted to respond. So, so share with us what the work overall the coalition does and, and how we can be better supporters, uh, whether it is through giving time, amplifying certain stories, and to make sure that the story of, of the faith and the people are told in the proper way. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, um, I'll, I'll speak about the Sikh Coalition first. It's this fantastic organization that was born in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, actually on the day of 9-11, um, mm. as the violence started spreading across uh, starting from New York City and then around the country, and so it's it's very it's it's very much rooted in this vision uh, for civil rights and, and the the inclusive Sikh vision, which we refer to as Sarbadapala, uh, which means the the uplifting of all humanity, and and that's that's part of our ethos. Um, you know, the Sikh coalition focuses specifically on issues that will 
harm or marginalize the Sikh community in, in terms of civil rights issues. But the but the ethos is always how do we do it in a way that lifts up others, right? Mm-hmm. If, if we're dealing with workplace discrimination that precludes people from working with their turbans, we'll, we'll always make sure, well, it shouldn't just be Sikhs who benefit from the updates. It should be, you know, Jews with yarmulkes and Muslims with hijabs, right? And so that's the kind of vision that we bring forward in our work. Um, a lot of it is, and then especially at the beginning, was rooted in, in reaction, um, specifically to, to hate violence. We've become, as, as we've grown and matured, uh, been able to become more proactive, uh, dealing on the policy side, the advocacy side, um, in education. So, so all across the spectrum in terms of what you would hope for uh, in an organization and uh, in, in a community organization like this. Uh, but but you're right that there's there's a real challenge uh, in moments where we hit the national spotlight, or at least stories of national significance that very quickly lose their significance because we find that people don't care, and and part of their their inability, or at least their the lack of care, is rooted in the inability to relate to our community because we look different. So there there is a, a, an element of of racism embedded in here. Um, and, and we found that consistently across the board, when there's a hate crime against the sick, you'll get less coverage and less interest because it's not seen as something that's affecting a larger American community. It's seen as affecting a small pocket within the American community. And that, that definitely has been what it's felt like in the, in the aftermath of the Indianapolis massacre. I actually just wrote a piece about this. There are some really troubling and interesting parallels uh, between the Indianapolis shooting and the the Georgia spa shootings, and and both, I mean, interesting in, in lots of ways. But one of the things that really stuck out to me is immediately after the Georgia spa shootings, you know, law enforcement said this is this is not racially motivated. He was having a bad day, right? Like all these all these sort of things to dismiss the potential of bias and to sort of negate its presence as a motivating factor. And then later we end up in this place where you, you, you very much recognize it, but, but Asian Americans immediately after the shootings were saying, well, this feels targeted. This feels different. Like let's look into this a little bit more closely. And the same thing happened in Indianapolis after the shootings um, of the, of the sick community where authorities have said there's no bias detected um, although we know he was visiting white supremacist websites, we know that he shouldn't have had access to guns due to previous issues. Uh, we know that he used to work at the facility, which was uh, 90% sick, uh, and he would have known that. And so, it, it, you know, it feels more likely than not that it was bias motivated. But but regardless, the community feels like they were targeted. And and I think the the frustration, and I'll, I'll speak for myself here, uh, the frustration that I felt in dealing with this story and trying to get some advocacy mobilized around it was that it was it, it felt like it was very much left to the Sikh community to bring the story forward. And although we belong to the broader Asian family, there wasn't really this understanding or or even this feeling that this was part of this was seen as part of the larger pattern of anti-Asian hate. And so I, to me, the real danger there, and, and you know, there are all sorts of things you could point to as particularities, and I, I, I wouldn't deny them. But the danger in in creating these discrete categories of 
what counts as Asian and what doesn't is that we fail to see the intersections. And when we fail to see the intersections, we fail to see the root of the problem. And I think that's the challenge. If we're not actually able to get to the point where we see white supremacy and hatred as the core of our challenges that we share and that we need to come together around in order to resolve, then we're going to be stuck in these same problems that we've been dealing with our entire lives. And so that that's as, as a racial justice activist, not as a sick, but as a racial justice act, I'm just like grabbing my head being like, oh my God, what will it take for people to see uh, that we need to come together in order to deal with this? And I know lots of communities feel that frustration in different moments and for different reasons. Um, but it's it's something that I've been thinking a lot about in the last month or so. I too have been thinking a lot about that, Simran, because I think my Asian American identity is an evolution of what began as my Korean, then Korean American identity. And I'm, I'm not excusing anything. I just think we all need to do better. Again, as I said earlier, if we have the audacity to call anything Asian or Asian American, you have to mean it, right? And I admit my own bias. I admit my own privilege at times uh, to view Asian American things and Asian American events in, in a particular lens. Um, but in the wake of the April 16th attacks, I was pissed. I, I was pissed, Simran, because I sit in some conversations digitally and virtually of groups that were formed as a result of Atlanta that wanted to mm -hmm. band together, that wanted to advocate, that wanted to raise money in the name of stopping Asian hate. And there wasn't a whole lot of noise on the 16th of April. And I had to call some people out. I said, if we're not going to be as loud for Indianapolis as we are for Atlanta, we have to rethink what this group of people thinks that they stand for or wants to stand for, right? Because they're a part of our community. It's a different part of our community, but they are still a part of our community. And I understand the complexity. I understand the difficulty. But then call yourself an East Asian, stop East Asian hate. I don't really, you know what I mean? It just gets frustrated because we're separating our, our groups when we shouldn't. What's happened in Indianapolis wasn't unique. As you mentioned, the Sikh coalition was literally born on 9-11 because it was that bad. And I think we often forget because it is easy to see other people in, in a different light. And so I, for one, as I continued commitment to trying to be better to have different voices on this show and, and all the work that I try to do, because it is a blind spot, right? Because I think as a kid born in Korea, I came here when I was eight, seeing all Asian people as my brothers, my sisters was not immediate. Those are things that I think right. we all have had to learn and then probably more so unlearn, right? Because right. we're so tribal in, in some of the way that we view our own communities. And so I hope that as we go forward, we can not have to worry about at least inter-Asian struggles, debates, things of that nature as, as we continue to advocate both at the policy level, at, at, the, at, at so many different levels, there's, there's going to be this fight to make sure that we can all feel safe. One thing about both of those attacks that troubled me quite a bit were the ages of those people who were murdered. Right. And, right. And, and to think how we as a society could do better so that grandma and grandpa don't have to sort packages or to do laundry or to cook at a spa. Mm -hmm. And aside from you and me sitting in our educated privilege, thinking about that part of our community that often is silenced, right? Because of the modern minority myth and the fact that all Asians are rich in this country. 
why do grandma and grandpa have to work there for minimum wage? It doesn't make any sense. And so that story I thought was untold throughout the narrative yeah. of the aftermath. I am in, in some way hopeful that you and I are having this conversation that the community is being vocal. You've done, you, let, let's simply say, you, you've been everywhere and, and you've really done the work, I think, to bring the message of your community, your faith, your people to an audience and to deliver it in a way that is so beautiful because I, I, I could not think of a better advocate for the community than you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Even your handle, the, the sick professor, the sick prof on, on Instagram <laughs> with, with blue check mark and all. I have loved this conversation. I have learned so much. Would, would love to ask you, Simran, to help us close out the show uh, in the same way that we do all of our shows, which is in the form of a, uh, a Dear Asian Americans letter. Anything that you'd like to say to our community, uh, messages of encouragement, inspiration, or hope, or even just introspection in light of your lived experience and the things that you'd like for us to know, if you could help us uh, close out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Yeah, I appreciate it. Dear Asian Americans, the journey's hard and there's lots of learning to be done. The word sick, the name of our faith, means student, a lifelong learner. And I think even in moments like this where we feel challenged, frustrated, even in moments like this, uh, there's, there's learning to be done. And so rather than feeling disappointed in ourselves or feeling frustrated with one another, take the opportunity to learn and grow. That's something that I found to be incredible wisdom for living life on a daily basis, as well as in getting involved in and more engaged in social justice and activism work. So don't expect everyone to get it right all the time. Don't expect yourself to get it right all the time. Be open and forgiving and, and give yourselves and the people around you a chance to learn and grow. Uh, and I think that's how, that's how we create this movement together. Thank you. That was beautiful. As a fellow father of two tiny people trying to use our voice and our platforms and our privilege to create an America and a world that is a little bit more welcoming and a little bit more equal and safe for them, Simran, it is truly an honor to have share this space and conversation with you. I can't imagine what the last month has been for you and your family and your community. I hope you're taking care. I hope you're taking care and staying healthy and, and safe mentally, especially as, as we continue to go through these challenging times where maybe not for the first time, but we are continually reminded that in certain spaces of our country that we are not welcome. And some folks have no problem telling us directly so. <laughs> and so even with that, we, we continue our fight and our work to make sure that our kids can have a, a safer place and that they can talk about what we're going through now in the past tense of things that daddy and uncle fought for, that advocated for. And so nothing but gratitude to you. Um, always welcome to come back on the show. Congratulations on the 10,000th copy oh, of you. your book. You. I, I, I am, If you're listening, please do buy a copy. I, I think it's wonderful. Um, and you're right. There's, there's not enough. I mean, look, South Asian folks are about a billion out of seven, right? About 16% exactly. of the country. <laughs> it is a Barnes and Nobles one-seventh brown. No, it is not. <laughs> Let's make it so. And, and it starts with Simran's book. It starts with other people's book. And because it is a business after all, the only way we're going to tell Penguin and the other publishers to 
publish more of our books is to make sure that the ones in print sell well. And so they don't mean to give supply and demand (laughs) one-on-one, but buy buy that book. Simran, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I hope, uh, I I wish you and your family health and happiness um, as we go through this summer. And uh, thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate it. And thanks thanks for all your work too and your voice. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Just an amazing conversation with uh, an even more amazing person. Uh, So grateful that he is doing the work that he's doing. Uh, So grateful that we got to meet and uh, that I got to share his story. And so uh, thank you to Simran for uh, not just using his voice, uh, not just his actual voice, but through all different media that he's doing. Uh, he's, he's got a book. Uh, we have his uh, children's book uh, here on our bookshelf for my kids. And he's got other books coming out that we are happy to support. And so learn more about the Sick Coalition, More learn more about the work that he's doing at YSC and consider inviting him to speak to your organization or school. And you can learn more about him at SimranJeetSingh.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, at the Asian Americans is where you can be found on Instagram, at the Asian AM on Twitter, and hello at theAsianAmericans.com is our email address. So please reach out if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, suggestions, want to pitch yourself or somebody else as a potential speaker. Uh, we are really excited to finish out the second half of 2021 really strong. And so as we have rounded the corner here at the beginning of July uh, into the back half of 2021, uh, let's make sure that we do not let the momentum that we uh, gained in sharing our stories and being vocal about our community in the first half of the year and, and continue on. And so thanks again so much for tuning in. My name is Jerry Wan. It's been an honor to be your host here on The Years of the Americans. And please be ha- safe, happy, and happy. <laughs>